You know, I got to tell you, just as a side note before we get into the text, I don't normally like to do this. I like to go right into the text from the reading of Scripture. But we will reread the the passage this morning. Um, We are living in a time when I think some of it is actually measured by the government. I think a lot of it is just measured by the flesh in us to, to try to live as safe as possible. And, and I'm speaking to the live stream audience as well as those of you who are here today. Um, you, have you noticed how normally before when you were walking away from someone that you'd had conversation with, you'd say, hey, you know, have a great day, you know, enjoy your trip, um, it was good to see you, uh, and now what do we say a lot? Be safe. Be safe. I find myself doing that. And uh, I was awakened this week to think about that and ponder the fact that, uh, quite honestly, and I, and I want to make sure you understand, I don't believe we should take foolish risks. I don't think we should throw caution to the wind I think that we should be mindful of safety, but I don't believe that we should be driven by a preoccupation with being safe. And the reason I say that is because to be safe all the time is not to live a full life. When I look back at the times in my life when I experienced some of the greatest just joys, some of the greatest moments with God. I was in a place or a time of risk-taking. To play it safe in everything is to miss out on what God has for you in life. And again, let me back it up and say, so you've heard it twice now, I'm not saying you throw all caution to the wind and that that you're not mindful to do things that would be, you know, you've measured the, the cost. But when you play it safe, you give up something. And I believe the Lord has called us in this day, in this time, to live for him. Not to be safe in everything that we do. So let's let's use caution. Let's be prudent in our understanding and reasonable in our thoughts. But let's also be willing to walk by faith, not just by sight. Amen? Amen. That kind of flows into where we're going this morning in our text. I want to cover all of chapter 25. Bill read a portion to you. But this is part of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with that, we've we've said it now for several weeks. But the Olivet Discourse is is a teaching that Jesus gave that covers chapter 24 and chapter 25 of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel. And as we continue in this discourse, our Lord gives two parables today which underscore the importance of being ready for his return. Part of being ready for the Lord's return is to live by faith, not simply to live to be safe, okay? So it fits with what we're talking about. Uh, I I believe that the, the return of Jesus Christ is imminent Can I get an amen on that? I don't need silence on that. That's the greatest news I can share with you today. 
Christ is going to return. That's not a question. That's not a hope. That is a fact. Jesus himself said that he was going to return. And so we can count on it, okay? Therefore, we should remain in a constant state of vigilance and preparation. We should constantly maintain, if you want to call it, maintain a kingdom state of mind. Don't go through life right now simply with a COVID state of mind. Don't go through life right now with a governmental rules and regulation state of mind. You want to live your life with a kingdom state of mind. Jesus made it clear that in this world you're going to have trouble, trials, setbacks, temptations. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, that is the case for believers. That's not the case for unbelievers. They have nothing. An unbeliever right now has nothing to prepare for because they have rejected the king of glory. That's why it is our mission to share the gospel with unsaved people those in your sphere of influence, those in your family, those in your neighborhood, those in the marketplace, those in the workplace, share Christ with people. And not just the name Jesus, share the gospel, the good news. We sang this morning four songs that really outlined the gospel. Share the gospel with people. And, 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 and there are three focuses this morning. If you want to write these down, you certainly may. Three focuses for the believer as we await the return of Christ. How do we prepare right now in this life for the return of Jesus Christ? We should remain in a constant state of kingdom thinking. So how do we do that? Well, number one, we need a constant state of watchfulness and spiritual discernment. Live in a state of watchfulness, knowing every day, Today could be the day of the Lord's return. You say it hasn't happened for 2,000 years. So what? The Bible says that a day is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years like a day in heaven, which means that Jesus has been in heaven for two days. He's standing at the threshold of the door to re-enter this world. Live in a constant state of vigilance and watchfulness. And then also live with spiritual discernment. That's the first thing. Focus on a state of watchfulness and spiritual discernment. Secondly, we should have a measured faithfulness with God's resources. While we're here on this earth, have a measured faithfulness with God's resources. I'll explain that in a moment as we go through these parables, these two parables. Thirdly, a conscientious effort to fulfill God's good work. We need a conscientious effort to fulfill God's work. So to help illustrate these three focuses of a kingdom state of mind, Jesus gives us, first of all, the parable of the ten virgins. This parable underscores the importance of being ready for Christ's return in any event, okay? But more importantly, even if Christ delays longer, what do we do while we're waiting, okay? This tells us exactly what we ought to be doing. Because once he returns, listen, once the Lord breaks open the sky and returns, listen, it's too late. 
It's too late. Time's up. So we need to be ready and prepared. And so here it is, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Let me explain that in our day, which is different than that day. Here's what Jesus was saying to those who were following him in that day. To think of these ten virgins as bridesmaids, okay? Ten bridesmaids. The wedding would begin at the bride's house when the bridegroom would arrive and he would begin the process of the wedding procession. And a wedding in that day could take a week, uh, last a whole week. Could you imagine being the father uh, of, the, of the groom, not the bride, and being responsible to provide for that wedding for a whole week. We're talking a lot of wine. We're talking a lot of food. Keep all the guests happy for a week. So a much different picture than we see today. How many of you men are saying, man, I, you know, what's this thing about the, the bride's family taking care of the wedding? Well, I'd like to go back to biblical times. Amen. When I was raising three daughters, I was thinking about this passage a lot hoping and praying the Lord would, would turn the whole thing around, you know, change our culture, but he didn't do it. Okay, so you got to think of them that way. Uh, an evening wedding required lamps, obviously. They were needed for the procession. So, verse 2, five of them were foolish, five of the bridesmaids were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, the point of this first parable is very simple. The point is, be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. You don't wait until he returns to go get ready. It's too late. You have to prepare ahead of time. The price for failing to be ready is way too high. It's a price you can't pay. Be ready. I love what Charles Spurgeon said, the great English preacher. He said, when the door is once shut, it will never be opened. There are some who dote and dream about an opening of that door after death for those who have died impenitent. But there is nothing in the scripture to warrant such an expectation. Any larger hope than that revealed in the word of God is a delusion and a snare. And there are people today who think they have time. What they're doing is being disobedient to the word, which says, get ready now. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. You need to be saved. 
You need to have your oil, your, your wick trimmed, and you need to have a flask ready because you don't know when he's going to return. You need to be spiritually fit when the Lord returns. Now, before we go further, let me, I want to look, look if we can at verse 14. Well, let me first go back and say to you from, the, from what we said about the focuses, let me just repeat again that we need to be in a constant state of watchfulness and vigilance. We need to be in a constant state of watchfulness and spiritual discernment. When you know the Lord, that means the Holy Spirit lives in you. There is no Christian, a true Christian, who does not possess the Holy Spirit inside of them. And he is there for a specific purpose. That is to do his work in the life of the believer first and then through the believer in the lives of others. Those are the twofold purposes of the Spirit. To do a work in you, to conform you to the image of Jesus, and then to prepare you to be a witness to the world, to share the gospel. Every single Christian has the Holy Spirit in them to do that. If you say you're a Christian, but you're not truly a Christian, the Spirit of God is not in you. And you should be, today, if that's you, you there should be a great concern in you. Because God will not recognize your falsehood. He will not let you in on your good works, on your church attendance, on your dress when you come to church, on your lingo, on the songs that you sing about God. He will not let you in based on false pretenses. You have to truly be saved. Just real quickly, take your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians, if you will. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I just want to show you something before we go further, kind of a side note. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is now with the Christians in Corinth, and he's, this is the church in Corinth, and here he has come to them to minister and to teach them, and it's interesting, he has come, he has just come from Athens, Greece where he was at the Areopagus, and he spoke to the philosophers of the world. And he spoke in a way that they would better understand. He spoke of their statue to an unknown God. And he said, I know that God, and I want to tell you about that God. And as he gave them the gospel, the good news of Christ, only a few believed. So when he comes to Corinth... He really comes with a sobered mind. You can see it in verse 1 of chapter 2 where he said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, didn't not come, proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, as he had used with the philosophers. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified." What is your message as a Christian to this world? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else matters for eternity. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech 
and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. God is not looking to you to use words of wisdom, eloquence of speech. Nobody here is a silver-tongued orator, and God could care less about that. For you to share the gospel with the world, you come in weakness, fear, and trembling, so they won't focus on looking at you, but they'll see a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power at work in you. And the words are penetrating their heart. See, what you want people who you speak with to know is that I used to be lost in sin, but God found me. He saved me. He has transformed me. He's made me into a new person. And they knew you before Christ. And they're looking at you and going, you ain't the same, man. Something has changed in you. It is the work of the Holy Spirit conforming you to Christ. Amen? That's what we're talking about here. He said, I wanted you not to hear my wisdom. I want, wanted there to be a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Here it is. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's where spiritual discernment comes in. Wisdom of man is not spiritually discerning. In fact, Paul goes on to say that a natural person who's unsaved, let's say they're at the top of the educational stratosphere. They have their PhD and whatever else they have title-wise, and Paul says that they are absolutely without Christ living in their heart they are absolutely incapable of discerning spiritual things. In fact, look, if you will, look what he says here in verse 10 of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. No man on this earth, when you go on the History Channel and all these different shows where they're going to tell you, they're going to explain the Bible to you. They're going to take a Bible story that seems to be a miracle or a supernatural event and they're going to explain it away. This is what he's talking about. They cannot comprehend the thoughts of God except by the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, we don't think that way, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might, here it is, understand the things freely given us by God. If you know Scripture, if you have come to the truth, and the truth has set you free in the Scripture, it's not because you are so wise it's because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. You should give him all the glory for whatever you've learned by the word of God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. A lost person cannot understand spiritual things unless... The Holy Spirit draws him or her. Except the Spirit draw, no one comes to God. So as you're sharing the gospel, your prayer in the morning is, Father, today 
I pray that you would open the eyes of those that you send me to and that they would receive by the Holy Spirit the things that you have revealed to me to share with them. That's the only way they're going to understand. You ever shared something that you thought was a simple truth in the Bible with somebody who's lost and they give you this look like you're from some other country? Like, what, what, who are you? Like from another world. Who, what? And you're like, dude, what I just shared was simple. You don't get it? No, they don't. Why? Because the Spirit has not revealed it to them. Now look at verse 14. I know we're supposed to be in Matthew 25, but here we are. Uh, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Here's why. For they are folly to him. It's foolishness. You go into most of the universities today, and these professors with their, with their degrees are teaching children, and they are mocking the Bible. They're mocking Christians. They're mocking the truth of God's Word. Why? Because to them, it's foolishness. Don't be mad at them for mocking. They don't get it. Be sad for them. Pray that God would open their eyes, that the light would come on. Just like if you walk into a dark room and you reach over and you click the light switch and boom, light shows up. That's how it is when the light comes on in a lost person. That's your prayer, okay? So then, and he says, and he is not able to understand them because they are, here it is, spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, who is that? Every single believer, true believer, they have the Holy Spirit in them. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We're able to understand truth. We're able to go through this fallen world. We're able to experience all around us nothing but the world's belief systems. And yet we're able to make sense out of this life and spiritually live before Christ and communicate the gospel with others. That's what we mean by a constant state of watchfulness and spiritual discernment, okay? Now, verse 14, back in our text, chapter 25, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. So Jesus is continuing this concept, the importance of being ready, especially if he, if he lingers, if, if there's more time before he returns. He's going to return. There's a mission for you while he's gone. And then he will return. And so before we go further into this parable, the parable of the talents is what it's known as, I think it's important to clarify what is meant by ability in this story. Remember what it said at the bottom, verse 15 to 1? He gave five talents to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And a lot of times on the surface it would seem that he's referring to our spiritual gifts or some natural innate ability that we possess, that you might possess. But that's actually a misunderstanding of this text. Jesus is actually referring to the stewardship of one's resources. 
He's not talking about your natural abilities or your giftings. He's talking about every human being's resources, okay? Let me explain what I'm saying here. That resource might be gold, it might be silver, it might be cash, it might be stocks, it might be bonds, it might be material goods, cars, houses, whatever, the, whatever is a resource that holds precious value, not to you, but to the master. In the parable, this man leaves these who have resources, and they have different amounts of resource, three different people, three different amounts. And they, they, all those resources actually belong to the master. Okay, this is really important for us to understand. Everything you have, everything in your possession, everything that legally has your name on it, that's of great value or of little value, all of it belongs to God. That was very weak on amens. I heard two amens up front. Either you believe the truth of God's word or you don't. I said to you, everything, whether it's of great value or little value, all of it belongs to the Lord. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills, the scripture says. He owns all the gold. He owns all the silver. He, owns, he even owns your life. You wouldn't breathe unless he breathed life into you. You say, no, I earned my degree. I've earned everything I've done because I went and got my education. It's, it's what I've done. You wouldn't have done anything if the Lord had not given you the mind and the time to get a degree. It all comes back to God, every ounce of it. And I can prove it for you. <laughs> Excuse me. I can prove that very easily. When you die, how much of what you have is going to go with you? Nada. It's like the guy who told his wife, when I die, I'm going to leave a little bit for you, but I want all of it in the casket with me. All of it, all the money, <coughs> all the gold, everything we own, you throw it in the casket, except for the little bit I'm going to leave you. He said, you need to promise me that. She thought about it, <coughs> and she made the promise. All right, I'll do it. He died. She went over, got the checkbook, and wrote him a check for everything. <laughs> Stuck it in there, ma'am. She kept her promise. <coughs> How much of that check did he cash? Nada. It's all the Lord's. Every bit of it. The clue is, he's referring to how he left the property with his servants or his stewards is what the word that he uses. The master didn't leave natural abilities. He left things that were his that have material value. These were not necessarily of value to the servants, but to the master. Each of the servant was entrusted with a different level of material value. Just like in life, some possess great wealth, others have 
less wealth. Others have no wealth. It doesn't matter. Whatever you have, it belongs to the master. And as we wait for the return of Christ, what's real important is that we understand how to measure out and utilize what, what he's put in our possession for his glory. You say, how do you do that? It's called faithfulness. You live a life of faithfulness before God. That's what he's saying here in the text. In our text, it's the word talent. That is referring to a measure of weight, like a measure of gold compared to a measure of silver. Obviously, a talent of gold would be of greater value than a talent of silver. So in context, Jesus is saying that our stewardship of his resources should reflect how we are preparing for his return. Now let's look further. This gets even better. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent, went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered uh, to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done. What did he call him? Good and faithful servant. Look what he says again, repeats. Repetition in Hebrew, repetition uh, means what? It's emphasis. It's, it means more. It's emphatic. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. You'll be faithful over much because you were faithful over little. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you faithful over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Both the man with five talents and the man with two receive exactly the same reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. What this indicates is that reward is from the master, is based on faithfulness, not results. Faithfulness, not results. It's not about the amount you finish with. It's not, a, it's not about how many works you do for yourself. It's based on your faithfulness to God. You have been faithful over a little, I'm going to give you more. It's about how faithful you are with whatever amount God has entrusted to you. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Notice this, this servant characterizes the master in the wrong way. This indicates he doesn't really know the master. Basically, what he just called the master was, was, was wicked. I know that you reap where you did not sow. That's called stealing. I know this about you. Therefore, I didn't want to lose what I have because you're pretty hard. You're pretty ruthless. He's basically saying that whatever the master wants, the master takes even though he had no right to claim it as his own. 
Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound like our Heavenly Father? Yet this is, the, this is how many people in the world who are lost think of God. He's unfair, he's unreasonable, he's unjust in his actions. When in reality the person saying this is measuring God through their own personal lens of what is fair, reasonable, and just. Who cares what you think is fair, reasonable, and just? God is always fair, reasonable, and just. In other words, God, they think God's the problem. And uh, the reason he's the problem is because he's not lining up with the way I, th- I see him. He's basically a bad God. And this servant, is, that's how they see God or their master. The, the reason the servant misjudges the master is because he doesn't represent a genuine believer. Listen, going back to what we learned in 1 Corinthians, he's a natural man. He cannot appraise spiritual things. He will never be able to rightly see the Lord until the Spirit of God opens his eyes through salvation to truly see him. So look how Jesus responds through, as he gives this parable of this master. Look what the master says to the servant. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. That's what he said in verse 25. Uh, by the way, again, if this talent were a gift or a spiritual gift, you wouldn't hide it in the ground. Okay? It's a material resource. It's money or it's some other valuable. Verse 25 again. Here you have what is yours. But his master, master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. By the way, he's repeating what this man said about him in a mischaracterization. In other words, uh, the master wasn't implying that he agreed with what the guy said. He's simply allowing the man's own, own words to condemn him. This is how you saw me. If I'm that, if I'm that ruthless... Wouldn't you want to make sure you bring back an investment on what I gave you? Just playing out what the guy thought. If the slave really believed the master to be the kind of man he portrayed, that he was even more ruthless, then to him, he needs to be more faithful. This guy was unfaithful. Why? Because he's not saved. He's not thinking about the master returning. In fact, he doesn't even know who the master really is. To play out this slothful servant's assessment further, look at verse 27. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. Again, do you take your natural abilities and gifts to the bank? You only take material valuables to the bank. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. There again, whatever I gave you, it's mine. It's not yours. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will, not, or will be taken away. So those who are saved, listen, those who are truly saved receive God's grace, which brings immeasurable blessings in addition to eternal life in the favor of God. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. God the Father gave us an immeasurable value, Jesus Christ the Son. What are you doing 
with Christ who now lives in you? Are you being faithful while you await the return of Jesus? Everything we possess in this world should reflect the appreciation and the joy that we have with the riches of our salvation in Christ. Jesus said in John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So here's the question. Are you living your life and using the resources that you have at your disposal for the glory of God? Or are you only using them for yourself or for your own reasons? If anyone serves me, Jesus said, he must follow me. What does that mean? Take action. Let your faithfulness be seen. Let it be real. Let it be practical. Let it be evident, a measured response. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him for his what? Faithfulness to utilize the resources that he possesses. Again, someone might be sitting here saying, well, I have very little. It's not about the amount. It's about being faithful with what God has put in your hands. You say, I have nothing. I don't even own a home. You have your life. You have gifts. You have abilities. You have whatever resource you have. You have a way to use it for the glory of God if you choose or you continue to just hoard and keep it for yourself. Jesus ends the parable by saying that the master said what he said in verse 30, cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. Why was he worthless? Because first of all, he mischaracterized me. He basically took what I gave him and he sat on it. He only thought of himself, protecting himself in case I were to do something when he returned. So he simply made it about him instead of being faithful and thinking and serving me. And then Jesus said, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this parable of the talents illustrates the tragedy of wasted opportunities while we await the return of Christ. The master who goes on the journey represents Christ. The servants in the, in the story represent professing believers given different levels of material responsibility. And when he returns, he will separate the true believers from those who were faking it. And what will, re, what will be one of the signs of the judgment for that person? Whether they were faithful with what he gave them. Now, I want to be real clear here. Do not twist what we're learning from Jesus in this story. Jesus isn't saying that if you're faithful or if you're fruitful, then you'll, then, then you'll be saved. He's not saying by your works you'll be saved. What he's saying is that everybody who is saved is fruitful. Truly saved people recognize that God owns it. And I'm going to measure out a faithful response to him. That's what he's saying. By the way, this is not a sermon on you giving money to the church. This plays out every day that you live with your time, your talent, your energy, your resources, how you use them for the glory of God. Giving to the church is one way, and we're, we're commended for that by the Lord. But it's not the only way. You can give to others and share the gospel with them. The world simply wants to clothe people. The world simply wants to feed people. And the person dies with clothing on their back and their belly full, and they go into eternal damnation in hell. 
Because those people who took time to feed and to go visit the sick and go visit the prisoner and all those good social justice causes were not faithful to God. They did not give honor and glory to God for the resources that they were able to share with others. Verse 32, verse 31, this is really sobering. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That speaks of his earthly reign of Christ, described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He didn't say, Come, those of you who were fruitful for my father. He said, No, no, you didn't do anything to go to heaven. My father blessed you with eternal life. He gave you the greatest gift of Jesus Christ, and you received it. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited. I was in prison, and you came to me. The world will use those passages as if they're doing the right thing, and that's what qualifies them as being good people. In this story... They're doing good things, but they're not doing it as unto the Lord because they're not saved. And in the end, they suffer for it. Look what he says. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, did we not, we did not see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink. And when did you, we see you as stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What you were doing in the works that God gave you on the earth, you did it for the glory of God. You were being obedient to God in doing it. And the king will answer, answer, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. They fed people. They went to the prisons. They think that they're in. And God says, but you didn't give it to me. You did that for yourself, to have a name for yourself. You did that in the name of humanity, in humanitarian good. What good is humanity if there's no eternal salvation? You You haven't helped humanity. In verses 32 through 46, this entire passage at the close, Jesus describes the judgment. Look what he says at verse 46, and these... Those who did not do it unto the Lord, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Jesus describes the judgment here. You could easily misinterpret, though, what he means by judgment, so let's clear that up. The judgment described here in verses 32 through 46 is different from the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. This judgment precedes Christ's millennial reign, and the subjects seem to be only those who are alive at his coming. This is sometimes referred to as the judgment of the nations, but his verdicts address individuals in the nations. So when the great white throne of judgment comes at the end, that's when every person stands before him and gives account. And, those, and only the ones who will go before him are those who are lost. And he sends them into outer darkness, into eternal punishment, which is the lake of fire. You and I will not be judged in the great white throne judgment. You and I will come before the, the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be judged for our works that we did out of fruitfulness for God, faithfulness to God. But we will not be judged for our sins because Christ went and took on the judgment for our sins. Amen? But the world, they think they're going to be judged for their works. They're going to be judged for their sins. You talk about a rude awakening. You talk about the ultimate rejection. I'll bet everybody in this room has experienced personal rejection at some point. You know how bad that feels to be rejected. Every one of us. Try to imagine a person who lived their life serving humanity, thinking they're doing good things, having their name broadcast as a great person on the earth, and then standing before God and him saying, you're an evildoer, depart from me. You're going into the lake of fire with, with Satan and all of his demonic forces. That is the ultimate rejection. They don't see it coming, folks. Do not get so angry and don't be the enemy of those who speak a message of this world that is lost. It's, it's foolishness. Because you, you can appraise spiritual things. You should be sorrow. You should have sorrow for them. You should share Christ with them. You say, well, they'll reject me. If they, okay, give them the opportunity to reject you. And if they reject you, God will deal with that. That's not your problem. You just be faithful to throw the seed, amen? That's our responsibility. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. By the, word, this, by, the, by the way, the same Greek word for eternal, when he speaks of eternal punishment, is the same Greek word he speaks for eternal uh, life. You say, okay, what's the big deal? Well, it's called universal salvation. There are people today who claim to be Christians, and they believe that in the end, when people die, some will be punished, but it won't be for all eternity. At some point, God's love will win out, and it will override God's judgment of that person, and they will end up in heaven in the very end. That is totally bogus, unscriptural. Jesus said the eternality of hell is the same as the eternality of heaven. It's all the same. If you're going to spend an eternity in heaven, they will spend an eternity in hell. There is no such thing as a universal salvation. And I say that because that's a popular opinion among some Christians today. 
They're caught up in that. In fact, they'll go to the point of saying there is no real heaven. Where's heaven? Where, where did Jesus say that there's a real heaven? I go to prepare a place for you. Whenever he spoke of heaven, he spoke, we say, where is it? He always said it was up. I'll ascend. Heaven is up. Where's hell? He always referred to down, beneath the surface of the earth. Heaven and hell are real places. Eternity is real for those who go either to heaven or to hell. If this doesn't shake us as true believers, those of us in the room that are true believers, if this doesn't shake us to share Christ with lost people, this is why God has us here. Amen? This is why we're here. And no other reason. We should carry a constant state of watchfulness and spiritual discernment. We need a measured faithfulness with God's resources, and we need a conscientious effort to fulfill God's work here on the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we just give you thanks for the Word of God. Those of us in the room who are saved, the Holy Spirit is able to take this passage and, and, and explain it to us in such a way that we can now take it and apply it to real life. And those in the room who don't get it, those in the room who are wondering, what was this really about today? I don't know if I really believe that Jesus is coming back. I don't think it's going to happen, but, you know, this is what the church teaches. They don't get it, Lord. They're unsaved. In most cases, they're unsaved. I pray that you'd open their eyes. I pray that, Lord, the person who's been coming to church, who's been, who's been going through the motions, that they would realize it's by faithfulness that we do good works. That's the evidence of our true salvation. But it's by God's grace through faith that he gives us that we are able to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. May they receive him now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, church, and thank you for being here today. And uh, hopefully next week, maybe we'll see some of the boys start coming back. If not, maybe the following week. But uh, maybe send out a card or a note. Just send it over to Teen Challenge here in Vero. They'll make sure that the boys hear it and re they'll read it to them. Let's just encourage them. Can we do that? Those guys are in a tough place. And there's a lot of people in our church who are suffering right now. And be mindful of that. Be praying. I believe we're under spiritual attack. I really do. And I believe we all need to be prayer. That's another way that we're watchful in preparation for Christ's return is by leaning upon him in prayer. And there's many to pray for in this world, but also in our church family right now. Okay? God bless each of you. Have a marvelous day. If you want to be prayed for, come up front. Elders and, and prayer uh, ministry people will be glad to pray with you.